You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Well, let's finish this psalm. I have to admit, I was a bit sad when I finished studying. I've actually very much enjoyed going through this. As I've said many times, it is my pretty much my favorite psalm. So that's why we've spent quite a bit of time in it. Let's pick it up in verse 145. So that's Psalm 119, verse 145. We'll read the whole stanza, the whole section, as we usually do, and then we'll go back through and make some comments. Heavenly Father, we pray now as we turn our hearts and our minds towards your word that you would open our minds to see the wondrous things contained within it. In Jesus' name. So he says, I cried with all my heart, answer me, O Lord. I will observe your statutes. I cried to you, save me, and I shall keep your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watchers that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Those who follow after wickedness draw near. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. So we have here really the psalmist praying to God. As we've seen him at many times make petitions to the Lord, he does it again uh, a lot in this last section here. And he says he cries out with all of his heart, or your Bible might say with his whole heart. The point that it's making here is that this was not some half-hearted doubting prayer that wasn't really sure whether God was listening or whether God was going to answer, the psalmist knew that God was listening and he would answer. He did it with his whole heart, petitioning the Lord to answer him. He says, I cried to you, save me. Now, I love the simpleness, actually, and the directness of this prayer. Sometimes we seem to think that our prayers often need to be very elegant, full of prose that makes it look like we understand the majesty of God and so on and so forth but sometimes the quick simple prayers are the ones that come from a heart that's just in communion with God the whole time he's pleading to God in this section and he pleads to God that he would observe and keep the word of God and initially I stopped right there when I was studying this and it made me think like how many times do we come to the Lord just to pray to him to actually plead to him that we would keep the word of God, that we would walk in obedience to his word. We usually, when we come, we have a whole list of things that have come out of circumstances in our life that we want to commit to him, and as we should. But sometimes I believe we also need to just come to the Lord and ask very simple but monumental things in our Christian walk that we would keep his word. It says that he rises before dawn, 147. I rise before dawn. And this shows us that this man, as we've seen throughout this psalm, he was dedicated, he was disciplined in the task of seeking the Lord. He'd get up early to go pray and read the word. This is dedication. I don't know if any of you have tried to do that. This is something I'm trying to do much more recently now to fit in schedules. But I'll be honest with you, I can do it Monday, I can do it Tuesday, get to Wednesday, and you don't get up early, you just sleep all the way through. It kills you. But this man is way more dedicated than we probably will ever be, but it's something we can aspire to. And I believe he's pointing towards Jesus in many ways, because if you read the Gospels, you'll notice that it often tells us about Jesus's prayer life. And it's always fascinating when you look at Jesus's prayer life. Mark verse 135 says, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. 
Jesus would do that. But then notice the psalmist says not only does he rise before dawn, verse 147, in 148 it says that his eyes anticipate the night watchers that I may meditate on your word. So not only did he get up early to speak to the Lord, he stayed up late, capitalizing on the night, the quietness of the night when the word, when things are just still, so that he could meditate on the word of God. So he could truly digest it, contemplate its words. And again, this points us to Jesus Christ, Luke 6 verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. So we see here a dedication of this man. He rose early and he had the word of God on his mind at night. So what we really have here is just a picture of a man whose entire life, from morning till night, his whole day was really just utterly consumed with the, with the Lord. He wanted to start by speaking with the Lord, by getting things uh, right in the morning with the Lord. But then even at night, he wanted just to think on his word, to commune with him, to meditate with him. He was consumed by the Lord. And this is the first thing that we really want to, to try and emulate. I mean, what an example for us here that this man had such uh, desire and hunger. And you'll know as we've read this psalm, this is not liturgy or ritualism. This was out of that, we've, he said it many times, that pure love. Oh, how I love your law. Your law is my delight, Lord. You've seen how many times he said that. So what we're seeing here is not someone trying to be legalistic and prove that he's righteous like many of the, the Pharisees that we read about in the New Testament. They did these things just for show. This is a man who didn't care. He needed and he wanted that time with his Lord. He was just consumed with God his whole life, morning till end. Now, I liked the concept of that word being consumed, you might notice I've just used it a few times. It, it coincided with another verse I was reading this week, Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, that had me thinking about this. This verse says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, most times when you hear that phrase, God is a consuming fire, it's used in the context of God is a consuming fire, he will consume sin, like the fire is judgment and he will consume sin. And whilst that's fine in many contexts, in this verse where he's actually called a consuming fire, it's not talking about consuming sin, it's actually talking about our service being consumed by God, if you could look at it like that. Look at the context. It's talking about an acceptable service with reverence and awe. It's saying that we were created to be surrendered and consumed by God, just as a candle, you could say, is to be consumed by the flame. That is a picture of a man who is utterly consumed with God. I believe that is the same sort of heart that we see in the psalmist here. Now, I want to give you a historical example. You know I love taking little examples from church history that are unknown, but I believe deserve more attention than they get, of what the Lord can do with someone like this psalmist, with a group of people whose lives are consumed utterly by the Lord. But to set the context for how much this has impacted all of us, and I stand here sharing this story with you because I believe we are beneficiaries of this, but it happened a long time ago. We're going to go back to 1415, the year 1415. We're going to start with a man named Jan Hus. He was a Bohemian reformer. He was one of the first people of the Reformation before Calvin and Luther. In the famous names, there was a man called Jan Hus. He was a leading light of the Reformation. He was challenging the power and the corruption of the Roman church at this time, the Catholic church. And because of that, eventually he was labeled a heretic and he was executed, burnt at the stake, rather. 
But he had quite a few followers at this point, and they rose up after him particularly, and they were known as Hussites historically. The Pope sent armies to Bohemia to try and destroy these people, but actually they were pretty good and they kept winning. Finally, the Pope gave in. He allowed them to have their own Bohemian church. And then in 1457, a group broke off from this main body of Hussites, and they called themselves the Unity of the Brethren. Now, many of us have probably never heard of the Unity of the Brethren Church. Just stay with me here. The Hussites were really considered the first Protestants. Then let's jump forward to the 17th century. This is the time of the Counter-Reformation. So this is when the Catholic Church was pushing back against the spread of Reformation ideas, extremely violent period of history. Now, one of the targets of the Counter-Reformation was this Bohemian kingdom, this Bohemian church, and they were forcibly re-Catholicized. You can imagine how that went. All their schools, all their nobles, any leaders who were Protestant were executed. Up to three quarters of the population were actually destroyed at this time by the Catholic Church. However, this group, the Unity of the Brethren, they survived. They were persistent. Many of them fled to Europe for a time, but many of them remained right there, but they were extremely persecuted. Seeking refuge, they contacted a nobleman in the area called uh, Nicholas von Zizendorf. This is in 1720. He was a relation of one of the royal families, so he had a massive, large land estate. And he agreed to let these fleeing unity of the brethren Hussites stay on his land. So the whole unity of the brethren movement gathered in this town in Germany, and they settled there on the Zizendorf's estate. So he allowed all these people flee onto his estate in Germany, and eventually that town, well his estate actually, this massive patch of land that he owned, became the town of Hernhut, and that means the Lord's Watch. And if you Google that town today, you'll find it is still an actual town in Germany, that was founded by this group called the Unity of the Brethren. However, after a while, the town, as you can imagine, if you bring a load of theologically-minded refugees into a small, enclosed space, they started arguing and having theological disputes and all these things that uh, pop up in these environments. But it got so bad to the point that they were almost destroyed by their own disunity. So this man, Zizendorf, who was a, a fervent believer... He intervened, he helped, he started interceding for them, really, for praying, and he came up with something called the Brotherly Agreement, which was about repentance and prayer, if there were issues, and this was adopted on May the 12th as a sort of community covenant, whereby they would act like this. And then August the 13th, after doing this, after this whole community fell on their knees and repented, they experienced a renewal that they compared to their Pentecost, and they said, this is where we really learned to love one another. And this marked the renewal of what they call the renewed unity of the brethren. And this became known as the Moravian Church. Has anyone ever heard of the Moravian Church? Yeah, a few of you, a few of you have. It'll, it'll become clear where I'm going with this as we progress into history a bit more current to us. They were the Moravian brethren from now on. So now, August 27, the year is 1727. Two weeks after that renewal, 24 men and 24 women from this Moravian church, this group, this uh, refugee community of believers, they agreed to spend an hour each day in scheduled prayer, covering all 24 hours in the day, seven days a week. That was what they committed to do to one another. And this idea grew in their community, and they had more and more volunteers coming to sign up for one of these slots. The practice of 
continual prayer that they started on that day with 48 people would not be broken for over 100 years. For over 100 years, this Moravian prayer meeting went on. It's a very famous event, actually, if you read church history before our time. Out of this prayer meeting, the Moravians felt a call to engage in foreign missions. So this was actually what we would call the first Protestant missionary movement. Most church historians will say that it was modern missions owe their origin to a man called William Carey, who we, we've probably heard about a little bit more, the, the famous missionary. But as he himself will testify, his influence came from this group called the Moravians. So by 1791, so this is 65 years after the start of that prayer vigil that was non-stop for over 100 years, not one single hour was missed from someone in that community praying for 100 years. I just think that in itself just wows me. I mean, that is just impressive. And you'll see what the Lord did with that in a moment. So by 65 years afterwards, they had sent over 300 missionaries out to the ends of the earth, different places that had never been reached before. Most of these missionaries died fairly brutally. But they, as they tell the story, whenever someone was killed, three more stepped up to take their place because the, the environment of their community now on this prayer meeting was just so uh, in touch with what the Lord was doing. The impact of what happened with those first 300 missionaries, though, is incalculable and through these Moravians. We might, like I said, we are probably here today. The whole Protestant church, the whole evangelical movement, I believe, can be traced back to something that happened at this time. Let me give you a bit more of the story. January the 25th, 1736, a group of Moravian missionaries were on a ship and it was hit by a violent storm to the point that people thought it was going to be destroyed. And as all the English people on the ship were terrified, they were screaming, even some of the Anglican clergy who were there, this little group of Moravian missionaries just sat there and they continued to sing praises to the Lord as they always did. There was a young man on that boat. His name was John Wesley. And he was so impacted by seeing those missionaries and by, at this point, part of the Anglican clergy that he was with and the contrast between those who fear the Lord and those who obviously did not at this time, he went over to them and he asked them, you know, how is it that you're not afraid? How is it that even your women and your children are not afraid? And the simple reply was that neither us nor our women nor our children are afraid to die. We know the Lord. And he wrote in his diary of this event, John Resby wrote, that this was the most glorious day which he has ever seen. It's a very strange comment. You think how much that impacted him. And it went on. Just seeing these people, these Moravians, when you think about all their history, they still had this prayer meeting running. Now, two years later, Wesley had returned. And because of this event, he was having like a crisis of faith. So he didn't come back and the Wesleyan revival happened. He came back and he went through a period of doubting where he was wrestling with his own understanding of the Christian faith because he realized he didn't have what these Moravians had. And at this time, so we're in the year 1738 now, some people persuaded him to attend a meeting on the Aldersgate Street in London. If you go to Aldersgate Street today, they actually have a massive page of John Wesley's diary where he describes his conversion experience on this event. It's quite interesting to read. But what most people don't tell you that this meeting was a Moravian meeting. This was a group of these Moravian brethren who were there having this meeting. And it was in this meeting that he first heard that sermon from the Book of Romans, where he describes his heart being strangely warmed and he had his conversion experience. And basically that is what started off John Wesley doing what he did. This led to what we call the Wesleyan Revival. The Wesleyan Revival would bring countless millions 
into the kingdom of God. It would change the face of England and the world forever. The Wesleyan revival gave us the start of Methodism, and I would say it also gave rise to British evangelicalism. These people that we read about, Spurgeon, and these, these figures that come a little later, the Victorian evangelicals, all the countless social reforms that we see grew out of that movement, the abolition of slavery, and then this obviously led on to the rise of American evangelicalism too, with the first and second great awakening. All of these things are still, we are beneficiaries of that today, we still feel the impact of these things around the world today. But you can trace them back to this group of men and women who were just willing to be utterly consumed like a flame consumes a candle in service to their Lord. This is what the Lord can do with someone like this psalmist whose night and morning, day, entire life is ordered about with the Lord. The impact just goes on for generations and the Lord uses things like this. And when I was studying this, I have to admit, I was very convicted at this stage and I had to stop and just pray for a little bit to sort of get my heart right again because in our world, when you read about these kind of things, it's quite hard to relate in many ways because we think, well, we're busier than them, we've got different things to do, it's a different time, it's a different culture. And sometimes we almost know that we're kind of kidding ourselves when we try and say these things, don't we? We kind of know that they probably could have given the same list, but still, they made this covenant amongst themselves that not one hour of the day would pass that someone from their community would not be praying. And out of that, they were given a heart for the lost. And out of that, the first missionaries from the Protestant world went out to the world. Out of that, we saw the entire world transformed through different revivals over history. That is what happens. And I just love that story. Let's do, let's do verse 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So in this section, we see a renewed plea for God and his word. Notice in the first two verses, all, all the petitions, look upon me, rescue me, redeem me, revive me. You can, you can sense the, just the intensity of the psalmist here, petitioning his Lord. And what's it saying with all these things? He looked to God for everything. He didn't go anywhere else. He just went to the Lord. We see a huge amount about this man from this. And in this whole, this whole section, we see his understanding of the Lord is just so deep. If I was to summarize the different things we could say about the Lord just from these verses, we could say the Lord is his rescuer. The Lord was his savior, his lawgiver, his advocate, his redeemer, his life giver, his mercy giver, the covenant keeper, his teacher, and the one who spoke truth to him. This is a man who had such a close relationship with the Lord through his word that he could just, this stuff was just flowing out of him, as we've seen for the longest psalm in the whole Bible. But he also highlights again that those who do not seek the word are his adversaries, and they are his adversaries because they do not seek the word. You can, he's making a play on words there. And then I'm going to focus in on that last verse for you for a little moment. It's one of my favorite verses. 
one of my early memory verses, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So what is this saying? That word sum, it means the totality. Every single part of his word is true. That says, that goes against many theories that we've seen come through the church over history. It does not merely contain truth, as some people would try and teach, in amongst some human error or some mythology from the current uh, period. That's a very popular view these days, that they included myths of the time that they wrote. It's a slight misunderstanding of what's going on there, but that's one thing. The whole of the word is truth. It doesn't become truth when the Christian engages with it. That's another view that's gone through the church. It's not only true when it addresses spiritual matters. It's true when it addresses history. It's true when it addresses cosmology and science. It doesn't speak like a science textbook, but it does touch on a lot of these issues, and it is true. It is not a continual conversation of evolving truths, as some people like to say today. It's not an ongoing thing that is gradually becoming more and more true or less and less true as culture changes. No, the psalmist is saying that the total sum, every single word, is verbally inspired and totally true. Not only that, it is everlasting, because as we've seen before, it is tied to the character of God who is also everlasting. He's stated that concept before. Now, we could talk a lot about what this means for us. They call it the doctrine of inspiration. You might have heard that. I'm going to read to you just a small section from a document that's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. It's actually a brilliantly stated and written document if you want to understand what uh, we believe when it comes to the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. It was a council that was convened by evangelical scholars in 1978. I believe R.C. Sproul and Norman Geisler were the two main signatories who started this. It's probably the nearest thing that we've had to a church council in modern times that has been a bit like some of the early Nicene councils and things like that. But it's a longer document. I'm gonna, they do a short preamble. I'm going to read that to you. It, it summarizes, I believe, this verse very, very well. It says this, God who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meanings. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's act in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. And this is a doctrine that's actually challenged considerably in the church today. Many people don't believe you can hold these sorts of views in the Bible. I would encourage you all to, to actually just go and Google the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and read the entire document. 
because it, it consists of articles of affirmation and then articles of denials. And it's really a good lesson in theology. It's worth reading. The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Let's do the next section. 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Those who love your law have great peace and nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. I love that first verse. My heart stands in awe. Now this is the penultimate stanza, we could call it. And he stresses again this overarching theme that we've seen throughout this whole psalm, which is quite simply, the word of God is amazing. And we as Christians are to delight in it and to love it. He's saying that his heart is utterly captivated by it. It fills him with a sense of wonder, of fear and of awe. And we need to ask ourselves, what does our heart stand in awe of? It's hard sometimes to know, isn't it, in amongst the busyness of life, what things actually stop and make us gasp because they're so amazing. You could say that quite often a, a, a dramatic act of nature quite often does that. I've heard people say that standing in front of the Grand Canyon can make people sort of have that awe and wonder. Looking up into space is another one that people often say. And that's a good reflection of kind of what we're talking about here. But the psalmist is saying that what makes him have that awe and wonder is simply the word of God. And we need to ask ourselves, is that the attitude we have? And I would say for most of us, probably not. At least not every, all the time in our lives. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip and make us be ashamed for that. But if you recognize that in yourself, then let's pray about that. Let's do what the psalmist does here and petition the Lord many times as he's studying the, the, the word to help him with these things. This is why David prays. You may notice I often pray, open my eyes to see wonders within your word. That's what David prayed in one of the psalms. We studied it a, a months back. And he's obviously saying that because he knows this is something he needs the Lord's help with. That's a beautiful model for us to pray. Whenever you come to the word of God, pray that prayer of David, that the Lord would show you wonders in his word. And gradually, as we've seen, your heart will be filled with awe as the word. It says that it, we studied it a few weeks back. It is the word of God that produces reverence in us for the Lord. It actually, the more we study the word of God, the more we get that reverence for the Lord filled in because the more we understand of his character, the more we learn about him. And it just, it's just a cycle that will go on and on. His heart was in awe of the word of God. Now, I think this is actually harking back to a statement that Jacob made at a place called Bethel. Do you remember the story in Genesis 28, verse 17? The whole Jacob's ladder where he pictures the angels and descending from heaven. He made a declaration in Genesis 28:17. He said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And you'll find today that some Jewish collections of scripture they will have that verse on the front cover of their book plates. And the idea was that these scriptures are like a gateway to the house of God. And although we, we may argue that there's misunderstanding in some areas with our view and their view, I think the principle is a very good principle that they're looking at here. We can come to the scripture with this psalmist, stand in wonder and say, how awesome is this? Because the word of God gives us that glimpse into the very house of God, into the throne of God, and that is awesome. 
And that is what we have here. This is what the gift that we have here. That is why he says in the next verse, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil or great treasure, it might say. Now, this is one thing we can understand. Think how desperately people have searched for treasure on this world. And think how elated people become when they find treasure in this world. What the psalmist is saying is that this should be our greatest treasure. He's expressed this theme many times throughout the psalm. Yet I would argue that we actually, we don't have to search for treasure in our context in the Western world here. It's not like we're actually plundering or searching and making much effort to try and find the word of God. Because we, we, let's admit, we have an abundance of the word of God. We have more Bibles available to us at any time in history most of us own at least three or four Bibles. We have every version available on our phone. We have more on the internet than we could ever ha listen to in our entire lives. There is an abundance of it. And I would say, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, it's a very good thing, but quite often when we have an abundance of something, we lose appreciation for what it is and we lose our delight in it. And I would say this is what has maybe happened in the Western world. And this is no different to the warning that God gave the Israelites when they came into the land. Let me read to you this text from Deuteronomy. Make the parallel with me in your head. So this was what he was warning them about before they went into the promised land. And he was warning them about what would happen when they become complacent in the land. Deuteronomy 8 verse 7. He said, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat, barley, vines, figs, pomegranates, land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you. Otherwise... When you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and have lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver and your gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now you see the parallel that I, I'm trying to put in your minds here. When they got into that land and they actually ended up having everything, all those physical blessings in this context that they had, that it got to a point where they became so commonplace in their minds that they actually forgot to start thanking the Lord for them and, and attributing it to the Lord. And this is quite similar to us. We read people like those Moravians. I could give you many examples of people doing similar things to get the Bible into the word of God into our hands. It was the fight of their lives, men who were consumed for that one purpose of getting us the Bible. And yet today, we sit here surrounded by more Bibles than we could ever imagine more translations, more everything, and we must ask ourselves whether that has happened to us. We have a Bible on every bedstand, on every corner if we're Christians, but are we actually engaging it with the same manner that those people who was, had to search for it like a hidden treasure? It's a convicting question to ask ourselves. I'm not saying any one of us is better than any one. I'm just saying we need to sometimes ask ourselves hard questions like that. This is the psalmist, I believe, asked you know, when we see what he does, it's impossible not to ask those questions. I think we're not better than the Israelites. If they became complacent, how many times in the Bible does it say, learn the lessons of Israel in the Old Testament? This is why most of the Bible, you might have noticed, is what we call Old Testament, is concerned with the narrative of Israel. 
The Apostle Paul says that you need to learn the lessons of Israel. That's why they're in there. We are not above them because we have this different standing with grace in the new covenant. We do have a different standing with grace in the new covenant. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But we still have those stubborn hearts. We still have those hard hearts in many ways that we are prone to wander. We're prone to sin. And we can easily become complacent with these things. So we need to just examine ourselves sporadically with that. But this psalmist, again... He knew what he had in the word of God. He knew it was treasure. He searched for it. He delighted for it. He rose early for it and he went to bed late for it. Look what he says in the next verse. Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Seven times a day. Again, this just stopped me in my tracks, this. How often do we just stop in our day and thank God for his word? don't know. Quite often we'll stop in our day and we'll pray for you know, the day we're going to work, we'll pray for someone's soul, and we'll do all these things that we do, and these are all wonderful things to do. But how often do we actually just stop and thank him for his word? Because it reflects the attitude that we have to the word of God. It goes back to my, my previous point. We always just assume that the word of God is going to be there, we can have it, you'll get it at church on Sunday, and so on and so forth. But the psalmist here is speaking of something much more personal than what the pastor's saying to you necessarily. He's speaking about your own desires for the word of God. He's petitioning God. Remember, he prayed, God, help me to keep your word. And that only comes from loving the word like this man does. And this is why I believe this is the longest psalm in the Bible, because it's one of the most important lessons that we can have. Seven times a day. Now, whether that was a literal seven or seven being used as a, a complete number there, we're not really sure. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact at all. He praises God for his word. Such great exclamations we have in this stanza, again, of his view of the word. Things that we've seen throughout this whole psalm. His heart is in awe of it. He rejoices at it. He loves the law. He praises God because of the law. He has peace because of the word of God. He keeps the word of God, and he loves the word of God. And notices in the end there, he adds the word exceedingly. He loves the word of God exceedingly. Just almost running out of language, you can sense this man now, to try and emphasize to the reader quite how much we need to love the word of God. And this, honestly, is why we do put such an emphasis in our church on, on expositional Bible teaching, because it's a method of Bible teaching that allows you to engage with the whole counsel of God, like Paul said in the book of Acts. You know, he declared to them the whole counsel of God. I want to share with you another little historical example about expositional Bible teaching. This is from a, a small book on church history. Just listen to the story. When preached simply and purely, verse by verse and book by book, the Bible can change lives and transform history. Just ask Zwingli. Ulrich Zwingli was born on January the 1st, 1484, in a Swiss shepherd's cottage in the Alps. His parents instilled in him a love for God. The young man proved to be a brilliant student. Following a brief stint as a school teacher, he entered the priesthood. And for 10 years, he labored in the village of Glarus. And there he began corresponding with the famous Greek scholar Erasmus. The Swiss church was bubbling with corruption during this time. In 1516, when Zwingli moved to Eisendeln, he too was struggling hard with sin. In his new village, he, the young priest, fell into a relationship with the barber's daughter. But it was also in Eisendeln that he borrowed a copy of Erasmus's newly published Greek New Testament. Zwingli copied it. He carried it everywhere. 
He pored over it continually. He scribbled notes in the margins. He memorized massive portions of it. The pure scripture began doing its work, and Zwingli's life and preaching took on new vigor. Soon he was invited to Zurich as chief preacher in the cathedral. Zurich was a center of the Reformation, if you don't know. He arrived on December 27, 1518, and he began his duties on, 30, on his 36th birthday in 1519. With a shock, he announced that he would break a thousand years of church tradition by abandoning the church liturgy and the weekly readings as the basis for his sermons. Instead, he would teach verse by verse through the New Testament, beginning immediately. And he proceeded to preach that day from Matthew chapter 1 on the genealogy of Christ. This always touches my heart, this bit, because I don't know if you, Doug told you the story that when he came down here, the first thing he did, that very first church service that we ever, ever had, he started with Matthew chapter 1, and he just went verse by verse through the book of Matthew. He continues, such preaching was radical in his day, but Zurich loved it. Zwingli's concern for the city's youth, his courage during the plague, and his cheerful temper dispelled initial doubts about his Reformation ideas. Later, when opposition arose, the city council and 600 other interested citizens gathered to evaluate his actions, and the assembly affirmed that Zwingli and encouraged his work. Lives were changed, history was made, and the Swiss Reformation had begun. This is what the Word of God does. When people are willing to do those sorts of things, the Lord will use it. Now let's read the last section. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. So as he brings this magnificent psalm to conclusion now, he again in this last section summarizes much of its contents. He petitions God for deliverance, for instruction in the word, for understanding in the word. He expresses his longing for the Lord's salvation, for his delight in the law. He expresses a desire to speak out the word of God in song. He says, let my tongue sing of your word. And he ends on a very poignant note of introspection, acknowledging that he is prone to wander like a sheep gone astray. And thus he needs the tender care of the chief shepherd. You see, he didn't let his love for the Lord become an issue of pride. He was always understanding that he's just prone to wander over by the grace of God. Now, I want to end by just giving you a little more history, picking up on the story I shared with you earlier, because it points to one of the verses we've just read. Let's go back to the time, the Moravians, we'll go back to the time of John and Charles Wesley. Remember I said they had that experience on the boat with the Moravians, and then they came back and they had a doubting period. During those two years, they met a man named Peter Bowler. He became a very good friend to them. He basically discipled them and he was actually pretty much responsible for their conversions. He was the one that took them to that meeting. And Peter Bowler was, guess it, by, I'm sure you can guess by now, he was a Moravian preacher. He was a Moravian pastor, very godly man. He was instrumental in the salvation. And during uh, a bout of pleurisy, I think it was Charles Wesley at this time, he had a bout of pleur pleurisy just before he ended up 
going to this meeting. He was prayed for by Bola, and he got saved. And he then found out that a very similar thing had happened to his brother, John. They had about just four days apart. They both had these conversion experiences. And one year on, when when they both found out, sorry, at the same time, four days later, they got together and they sang a hymn. And this is when Charles Wesley really realized that the Lord was going to make him a hymn writer. He was going to start writing hymns. And then a year later, they got together again and they penned a special hymn for the anniversary. They called it for the anniversary of one's conversion. So it was a thing that you would sing in honor of your conversion. And that song begun with these marvelous words, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. I love this song because it fits in with all that history that we've just looked at. And also, it's taken from Let My Tongue Sing of Your Word, but it's also taken from the man Peter Bowler. It links back to these Moravians because, as Wesley records in his diary, there was one time he was asking Peter Bowler some tough questions, and he gave this answer to him. He said, Brother Wesley, had I a thousand tongues, I would praise him with all of them. And that was another thing that impacted this man, these Wesleys, the Wesleys, so much they end up writing this hymn. It was the overflow, a comment like that, if I had a thousand tongues, I would praise him with all of them. It's the overflow of a man who was utterly consumed with God, who delighted in his words so much that he just could not stop it bursting forth in song and praise in his life. And not only did that Moravian preacher have that attitude, he passed that on to the two Wesley brothers, and they would go on to write over 6,000 hymns for the church, many of which are still sung today. If you turn to many old Methodist hymn book, I have many of them, I use them for my devotions. The very first hymn in every single Methodist hymn book is that hymn right there. So every hymn book starts, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. And they do that on purpose, they have that one right there. And this just reminds me, let my tongue sing of your word. That is really what studying the word of God should do. May we be conformed to this attitude as well. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theology and apologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.